Congregation, if you can think back a couple of months to when we looked earlier in our, our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, the, this, this summary of the Christian faith a couple months ago, and we were at Lord's Day 3, that section on man's misery, uh, we learned that God did not create man wicked and perverse, but rather he created man good and in his own image. In fact, it tells us, uh, based on Colossians 3 and, and Ephesians 4, that he created man in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, that he might truly know God and live before him in righteousness and holiness. That was man's intended purpose. And yet you know that because of Adam's sin, our nature became so corrupt that instead of knowing God, we became ignorant. And righteousness was replaced with unrighteousness or injustice as murders and the like began to occur. You think of Cain and Abel or Lamech uh, later on in Genesis 4. And instead of holiness, man fell into irreligion. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 6. So knowledge, righteousness, and holiness were replaced with um, ignorance and injustice and irreligion. And, and we see all of that pictured quite clearly for us here in the passage that we just read. Where the situation in Israel at this time in redemptive history um, is, is basically described at the beginning and end of the passage that we just read as a time of ignorance. It says in 2 verse 12 that even the priests of God did not know the Lord. And then it tells us again in chapter 3 verse 1 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no widespread revelation. It was an age of ignorance. And it was also a time of injustice when there was uh, no king in Israel and each man did what was right in his own eyes. The beginning of 1 Samuel here is during the period of the judges, same time as the book of Judges, where um, at the end of that book, there is that, that refrain, each man did what was right in his own eyes, for there was no king in Israel. Uh, they needed someone who would do something about all of this injustice. They needed someone who would do something about the uh, physical and spiritual abuse of 2 verse 16 and, and 2 verse 22, where these men in, in positions of spiritual authority are, are prying offerings out of men's hand by force and are taking advantage of the ministering women. And yet Eli simply asked them, why have you done this? And there's nothing about it. They need a king who will rule in righteousness. They need a prophet who will address their spiritual ignorance. And they need a priest who, instead of adding to their sin and abhorring the offering of the Lord, 2 verse 17, will take away sin and lead them in holiness. They need a prophet, priest, and king if their ignorance, irreligion, and injustice will be remedied. And that's the very thing that God provides in this passage as he begins to pave the way for a king to be appointed as this little child who's just been born, Samuel, will be the one to anoint King David. And as the, the song of Hannah even speaks of David's greater son, 
God is preparing the way to provide a king. God provides a prophet in Samuel so that the word of the Lord might again come to his people and he promises a priest in 2 verse 35 who will go before him forever and do according to what is in God's heart and what is in God's mind. God here promises and provides a prophet, priest, and king. I think Cornelis Vanderwall gets it right when, when he says that this passage is here given to us to foreshadow the, very, the various offices that Christ will fulfill. To show us against the dark backdrop of human depravity our need for a prophet, priest, and king. And to show us God's gracious provision of it. So look at the first at the promise of a king. First place that we see this is in the Song of Hannah where she rejoices in the Lord and her horn is exalted in 2 verse 1. And you notice the, the horn imagery sort of bookends this song where it, it comes back up in 2 verse 10 where she says that the adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah. And this is an interesting statement for her to make because remember, this is during a period where there is no king in Israel. And yet even there, though there is no king in Israel, yet at this time Hannah is here prophetically predicting and proclaiming that God will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his Messiah who will rule in righteousness and will overturn injustice as, he, as she describes throughout this song. Breaking the bow of the mighty, girding the weak with strength, even lifting up the beggar and the poor from the dust to make them sit with princes and inherit a throne of glory. Sounds a lot like what we sang in Psalm 113. It sounds a lot like what we sang in the Song of Mary. Hannah is looking ahead into the future and seeing how how God uh, raising her up and, and giving her a son is something of a microcosm of what God will do for his people. He will raise them up and exalt them over their enemies to the king who her son will prepare the way for. The anointed king and Messiah. Gerard Van Groningen says in this song, the suffering and supplicating mother becomes the praying and exalting prophetess who looks ahead into the future and sees the cause of Yahweh prosper through the promised Messiah, the king of creation and judge of the nations. She looked ahead and saw her son involved in God's program, which called for the messianic king and judge of whom she sang. And she saw her son give place to a higher son through whom the blessings of this song would come. This song of Hannah is fulfilled in part in David, whom God raises up. But even David knows that it looks beyond him as he will end his life in 2 Samuel 23, looking ahead prophetically for the king who would come and rule in justice. This is what Hannah's song is looking for. This is what Hannah is longing for. As she too looks around and sees all of the injustice in the land, just, just read the last five chapters of the book of Judges and you'll get a little flavor of it. 
As she too has been a victim of that injustice to some degree, being mocked by her enemy in chapter 1 of this sad situation of polygamy and barrenness. But she looks ahead to the day when a king will come and God will exalt the horn of his anointed and that king will rule in justice and he will, verse 4, give strength to the weak and overturn the proud. She is looking forward to the one who in the words of Lord's Day 12 will rule us by his word and spirit and guard us and keep us in deliverance he's won for us. Do you see how this passage speaks prophetically, speaks in in shadowy form of the same king we confessed in Lord's Day 12? This one who would come and rule in righteousness and guard and keep us in the deliverance that he won for us. And yet that's not all that this passage speaks of, but also speaks of a priest. A priest who will deliver us by the the, the sacrifice that he offers and continually intercede for us before the Father. That's what we see in the rest of chapter 2. Once again, we see this against the dark backdrop of the failure of Israel's priests. That's what we read of starting at 2 verse 12 where it says that the priests who were supposed to be leading the people in the knowledge of the Lord... You go and read a passage like Malachi 2, verses 4 to 7, where it describes the duties of the priest. They were supposed to guard knowledge. They were supposed to have the the word of truth on their lips, ready to speak knowledge to the people of God. But, But here it says that they themselves did not even know the Lord, for they were corrupt. And 2, verse 17, they abhorred the offering of the Lord which is described for us in uh, 2 verses 13 to 16, where instead of taking the portions of the meat that God had commanded in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it says they grab whatever they can get. 2 verse 14 says all the flesh that was brought up from the pot they would eat. Verses 15 and 16, instead of burning the fat first as an offering for the Lord, as Leviticus 7 required, they would demand the meat unboiled so that they could have it all. They have become gluttons who serve themselves rather than serving the Lord. And they give him, like the people of Israel in Malachi chapter 1, only their leftovers. Not one writer says they have become like waiters who eat their own meal before they serve the people in the restaurant. Or like a butler who does not serve his master until he himself is well fed. And just as that would be an insult to the the, the people in the restaurant or or to the master who is being served, so it is an insult to the Lord. They despise the work that they do. They spiritually and physically abuse God's people, 2 verse 16. And 2 verse 22, the women who serve in the tabernacle, they take advantage of. I think the women of whom it speaks are the women of Exodus 38, verse 8, who it says served at the entrance of the tabernacle, of the tent of meeting. But Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of the high priest and priests themselves, they treat these ministering women like cult prostitutes. The tabernacle that was supposed to be the place where sin is confessed is turned by the very men who are supposed to guard its holiness into a place not where sin is confessed, but where sin is committed. Dale Ralph Davis says they turn the tabernacle into a brothel, a place where sin is committed rather than confessed. They take these young virgin women who are dedicated to the service of God in the tabernacle and they violate them. 
There's a parallel between the way that they violate these women who are set apart as holy and the way that they violate the tabernacle which is set apart as holy. The inviolability and holiness of the place where God dwells is symbolized by the purity of of these women, but they violate them both. They desecrate the church of God. It's a little bit like some of the reports that have come out in the last couple of years about the largest Protestant denomination in North America having hundreds of cases of clerical sexual predation. Many of them, as Eli basically does in 2 verse 25, getting nothing but a slap on the wrist and then continuing in ministry. Some of them even getting standing ovations for their vague apologies. This is despicable. The men who are supposed to be uh, protecting the people of God are uh, using and abusing. The, The men who are supposed to be leading God's church in holiness are defiling it. They abuse God's people. They use their authority to serve themselves. They abhor the offering of the Lord like like the priests in Malachi 1. They despise it. They are sexually immoral. At 2 verse 24, they lead God's people into sin and transgression. And 2 verse 25, they do not heed the voice of the one who tries to call them to repentance. This is a picture of the priesthood in Israel. And a sad picture it is. And so in 2 verse 27, a man of God, a prophet, comes to Eli, the high priest, and and says to him, says when when your people, your descendants were in Egypt, did I not choose your father? This is a reference to Aaron. Did I not choose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest and to offer upon my altar and burn incense and wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father Aaron all the offerings of the children of Israel? So why then do you kick at my sacrifice and the offerings which I have commanded in my dwelling place? Why do you offer your sons above me and make yourselves fat with the best of the offerings? God says, therefore, even though I said back in Exodus 27 that Aaron's house would walk before me as priests, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. So behold... The days are coming when I will cut off the strength of your father's house and as a a sign that I will remove the priesthood from it, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will die in a single day. God pronounces judgment on the house of Eli and the house of his father Aaron and says that in the days to come, the priesthood will be taken away from them. And yet... Just as is so often the case all the way back to Genesis 3.15, God's promise of judgment is accompanied by a little glimmer of grace where he promises in 2 verse 35 that he will raise up for himself a faithful priest who will do his will and serve before him forever. One, not from Aaron's line, but, but even as that priesthood will be taken away, God will raise up for himself a priest for whom he will build a shore house. This priest will go in and out before him forever. 
There's a case that can be made that verse 35 should, should actually be read with my anointed as the subject so that it's saying, um, in the context of talking about this priest, my anointed, reference back to the king in 2 verse 10, shall go in and out before me forever, perhaps suggesting that this priest who will replace the Aaronic priesthood will also be a king. But further suggested with the parallels in, in verse 35 with the Davidic covenant where the very language that is being used in verse 35 is the same language of 2 Samuel 7, the promise of a king from David's line, where it says that God will build for him a sure house. That's the same language of of 2 Samuel 7. That language of God raising up for himself also being the same language of 2 Samuel 7. And so God is saying, even though I am going to bring judgment on the priesthood, I will also bring salvation. I will raise up a priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build for him a sure house as both priest and king, and he will go in and out before me forever. Not abhorring the offering of the Lord, but offering a perfect sacrifice. Not being a son of Belial, which is what 2 verse 12 literally says of Hophni and Phinehas, but a son of God who unlike Hophni and Phinehas does know me and walks before me in righteousness, not serving himself, verse 15, but giving himself. Not walking in sexual deviance, verse 22, but being a pure and undefiled bridegroom, not leading his people in sin, verse 24, but taking away their sin. In Hophni and Phinehas, in the priesthood of Israel, we see by contrast what this eternal priest will be. He will be a priest after God's own heart. And in him, God will unite the office of priest and king in one man from David's line who will rule in righteousness and have a sure house and a sure kingdom and will make atonement for sin. Not only restoring righteousness to his people as king, but also restoring holiness to them as their priests. And there may be a partial fulfillment of elements of this prophecy in Zadok, uh, 1 Kings 2, a, a priest who replaces Abiathar, Eli's descendant, and will serve God in holiness. But we know that that's not the ultimate fulfillment because God here promises in, in his allusion all the way back to Exodus in verse 27 and to the promise to Aaron in verse 30 that the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy will be one who is not from Aaron's line, which Zadok is. Uh, nor does Zadok live forever, nor in him are the offices of priest and king united. And so what we have in verse 35 is a clear messianic prophecy of one who in the words of Lord's Day 12 will deliver us by the sacrifice of his body, making a perfect offering before the Lord, offering himself, unlike the gluttonous Hophni and Phinehas who only serve themselves. He will not lead the people to transgress, verse 24, but will take away transgression by his death on the cross. This is what 1 Samuel 2, verse 35, is looking forward to. This chapter presents us with a coming king whom God will exalt and who will exert his strength on behalf of his weak people, ruling and protecting us from our enemies. And that king will also be a priest who will intercede for us in the presence of God forever. Beloved, do you see the beautiful picture that 1 Samuel 2 
this painting. As we'll sing at the end of our service from Psalm 72, of one who takes away transgression and rules in equity, who, who provides for our greatest needs, defending us against the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh, and dies for our sins. You see the picture that 1 Samuel 2 is presenting. And then I notice third, the, uh, the third part of this, this picture that we see in these chapters. Um, not only do we see God promising a priest through the man of God who comes to Eli, and not only do we see God um, foretelling of a great king through the, the song of Hannah, but we not also see God providing a prophet who will address his people's ignorance by revealing the word and will of God to them. That's what we see in chapter 3. With this boy, Samuel, who was born to Hannah, who, who she dedicates to service of the Lord in the tabernacle where, where, where all of this um, evil is, is taking place as he, he grows up and ministers before the Lord at this time where the word of God is rare and there is no widespread revelation. It is during that time that God calls him as a prophet. That's what we have in 1 Samuel chapter 3 where God calls out to Samuel these four times and the word of the Lord comes to him. And God, through him, confirms the earlier prophecy, confirming confirming the death of Hophni and Phinehas. And then the next morning, Samuel reveals to Eli the vision of the word of the Lord and what he spoke to him. And Samuel, as a true prophet, tells him everything and hides nothing. Same way the prophets in Deuteronomy 18 are, are instructed to proclaim the word of the Lord and hold back nothing nor add anything to it. First Samuel chapter 3 is the calling of Samuel as a prophet of God. Which is why it begins by reminding us that this was during a time when there was no widespread revelation in Israel. That it ends in verses 19 and 20 by telling us that none of the words he spoke fell to the ground and all Israel recognized him as a prophet. Verse 21, God again appeared at Shiloh. He appeared at Shiloh through the prophetic ministry of this prophet, revealing himself by the word of the Lord, which 4 verse 1 came to all Israel. The Lord provides for his people a prophet to remedy their ignorance. He's leading them into true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness through the office bearers that he is providing, through the unfaithful office bearers he is removing, and the king and the priest that he has promised. But what I want you to notice about this prophet that God provides is is the way that he's described throughout this passage. Back in chapter 1, we learn that he is born to a barren woman, somewhat miraculously, She then responds with a song of how God has exalted the lowly and brought down the mighty, filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty, helping his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And then it tells us how this child grew before the Lord. You see that in 2 verse 21. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. And in verse 26, it says that he grew in stature and in favor with both God and men. 
Uh, so the, this, is, this is what we've got. A, a barren woman gives birth to a child. She responds to God in song, speaking of how the Lord raises up the lowly and, exalt, er, and brings down the proud. And then it tells us that this child grew in, in uh, stature and in favor with both God and men, and he grew before the Lord. I invite you to turn then over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we, we see something very similar. Where God has just promised a child to marry against all likelihood. Remember, just as he, he promised a child to Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, against all likelihood, a, a child here is promised to the Virgin Mary in verse 31, Luke chapter 1. And then she responds in verse 46 with a song. And maybe this afternoon you spend a few minutes just looking through that song, comparing these, these two songs together. It almost sounds like a cover of Hannah's song from 1 Samuel 2, where she sings of God regarding her lowly estate, showing strength with his arm and scattering the proud, putting down the mighty and exalting the lowly, filling the hungry with good things. And then she recognizes, like Hannah, that God's mercy to her individually will have implications for all God's people as to the birth of this child. God is helping his servant Israel. Do you see the parallels? And then if you were to to go uh, turn the page over to Luke chapter 2, we see that this child, Jesus, is dedicated in the temple. It tells us in verse 40, of chapter 2, that he grew before the Lord, much like Samuel grew in 1 Samuel 2, 21. And then in verse 52, at the end of the chapter, it says that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. Same language from 1 Samuel 2. It's as if Luke is patterning these first two chapters to some extent after the first two chapters of 1 Samuel. And I point this out simply to make the point that we are to understand Samuel in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 as a type of Christ. That's the point Luke is making. And so as we turn from Luke back over to 1 Samuel 2, each of these offices that are are promised and provided in in 1 Samuel 2 and 3 look forward to and, and find their fulfillment in Jesus. Though there was a partial fulfillment in in David of Hannah's prophecy that God would give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, that prophecy ultimately looks forward to Christ. Although there was a partial fulfillment of the promise of a priest in Zadok, it ultimately looks forward to our only high priest who lives forever. And though God did provide a prophet in Samuel, that prophet is to be understood as a picture of our chief prophet, the one by whom Samuel spoke. This entire chapter is painting a picture of the one to come in whom all of these offices will be united in one person, our chief prophet, our only high priest, and our eternal king who restores to us the the knowledge, righteousness, and holiness that were lost in Adam so that as we are joined to him by faith, we might no longer walk in ignorance, irreligion, and injustice, but instead become prophets, priests, and kings in him having knowledge restored so that we might know him and confess his name, having worship restored so that we might offer him a sacrifice of praise in response to his sacrifice of himself, 
and having justice and righteousness restored, that we might exercise with him dominion over all the world in, in, in which we live and over sin and the devil in this life as we strive to live with a free conscience. Not like Hophni and Phinehas, but like Christ, our great high priest, who did according to what was in God's heart and what was in God's mind. Congregation, do you see your anointed office bearer, how he, he restores all that was lost in Adam? Do you see how Christ restores everything that Adam, the, the king who was to have dominion, the, the priest who was to guard and keep the holy place of God in Eden, and the prophet who was to, to proclaim God's word? Do you see how Jesus restores all that was lost in him? So that not only personally might we have something of our threefold office as image bearers of God restored, but also corporately as the church of God. That these things would be restored to us so that our churches would become places of knowledge and of righteousness and of holiness as we proclaim the word of God as prophets, as we protect the, the holiness of the sacraments as priests, as we exercise together discipline as kings. The three marks of the church are tied to the three offices of Christ to whom we're united. And as we are, it is our duty to faithfully exercise them that all of us and our children might live before God in knowledge and in righteousness and in holiness. Until after this life, we will reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Behold your prophet, priest, and king, how he takes away your sin, how he proclaims to you his word even now through his ambassadors, pointing you to his sacrifice of the cross, and how he reigns as your king, exercising his strength for your good and lifting you up in your weakness and in your lowliness as you trust in him. This is Christ. This prophet, priest, and king is the one who we, we celebrate this Advent, the one the people longed for, who would be all of this and more for them. And who has now come in fulfillment of all the types and shadows, all the promises for you. So take hold of him by faith and trust him and, and grow in knowledge as you sit under his words as you sit under the prophetic ministry of Christ from heaven who proclaims his word Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Grow in righteousness as you trust him as your king and grow in holiness as you look to this priest who takes away your sin and leads you in the way of God's own heart and God's own mind that you might love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. May we trust this prophet, priest, and king in this life and may we long for his coming again. Even as Israel looked for this prophet, priest, and king to finally come, may we too say, even so come again, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for how you give us these pictures so that your people long before Christ came might have a shadowy image of what he would accomplish. And so that even we looking back, um, just as, as we might look at a picture of, of, of something that's, that's, um, that we've enjoyed in the past and, and have our hearts warmed by it, so we might look at these pictures. Even though the fullness has come, 
and have our hearts and affections warmed and stirred as we look at these pictures of what Christ would come and do. As you think about our perfect high priest who has given himself for us and taken away our sin and guilt and shame. As we think about our eternal king who rules for our good and exercises his strength on our behalf. As we consider our prophet who directs us Lord's Day after Lord's Day to these glorious truths. Lord, would you stir our hearts and make us more and more like Christ, our heads, as we behold him. Would you cause us to long for his coming again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Respond to God's word by singing together at number 297. Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates. Number 297 will stand and sing all the stanzas.
offering this morning is for Reformed Faith and Life. And so before the deacons collect, let's uh, pray for God's blessing on these gifts. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the way that the Reformation so recovered that uh, doctrine of the threefold office of Christ and how that illumines for us the work that he has accomplished, but also uh, illumines the pages of the Old Testament for us so that we see in these various institutions um, a shadow of what Christ would come and do. We pray for uh, Reverend Kayan and the work of, of Reformed Faith and Life um, and as, as uh, Reformed uh, doctrine and teaching is uh, published and broadcast throughout Europe and in other parts of the world. We pray, Father, that you would um, cause these truths to, to be uh, celebrated and enjoyed by many. The fact that Jesus is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king, whom all the pages of the Old Testament point forward to. It was coming again, and even now, reigns in heaven as our king, intercedes for us in heaven as our priest. It is our prophet who sends forth those who would proclaim his word so that in the reading and preaching of the word, Christ speaks to us. We pray that that would happen in every place, that his kingdom would ever increase, even as we'll sing in a moment from Psalm 72. Bless these gifts, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
stand as we sing uh, Psalm 72b as our doxology, stanzas 1, 3, and 6.